0: In the last day of class today class and and um, we thought let's let's reserve a larger block of time at the end to respond in worship to respond in, in to God in all that we have in his word and all that we've learned and and the richness that we have in God's word and so um, so that's what we're going to do we're going to save time at the end and we're gonna we're going to respond in worship. Usually we just kind of do one song at the end, but we're going to do more at the end and just, just kind of thank God, praise God for all that he's done. Um, uh, good morning, and, and welcome to Next Community Church, especially if you are a guest or your visitor here this morning. We, we welcome you, and we pray that um, more than anything you would know how much God loves you. Uh, my name's Joe, one of the pastors here, and, and and just want to say we're honored that you're here. Good morning to those of you joining us at home as well. And uh, before we we get into the last week of our of our series here on the Word of God called the story, I want to just pause and in church we just want to pray for our world. We want to pray for uh, what's happening in our world, pray for Ukraine. Um, you know, I found myself this week not even necessarily knowing how to pray. Um, I turned to Psalm 47 and I want to share it with you this morning, Psalm 47 verse 8 is a good reminder to us that God reigns over the nations and he is seated on his holy throne. And so um, God is still in control and God is still reigning. He reigns over all the nations. Um, what, what do we pray for? Uh, well, I think, I think the things that we pray through a biblical lens is we know peace is a fruit of the Spirit and peace is God's heart. And so we, we're going to pray for peace um, we're going to pray that somehow in the midst of, of, of chaos and, um, uh, and war and killing, that the gospel would shine bright and that people would, even during this time, come to know Jesus. We're going to pray for protection of, of families and innocents over there. We're going to pray that um, un, ungodly, um, immoral leadership would be deposed and, and that God would um, do that. So I'm going to give a minute for you just to pray quietly, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin this morning our last week of Bible class. Father, this morning I take great comfort in knowing that you are seated still on the throne. That you haven't been dethroned. That there's not another king coming that's better than you, different than you. I thank you, Father, that we can trust you. That we can trust your word. We're learning more and more as we go through it. And so, Father, we pray for these things. We, we pray for, for peace. Lord, we know that wickedness and evil it is not of you. And so, Father, we pray for your hand of peace to fall on Ukraine. We pray, Father, that you would bring about a change of, of course of action. Father, we pray for these families, the, the, the images and the videos that we, we see around the world of what's happening. God, I pray that you would just protect them. Father, our heart breaks. We don't, we don't know even what to do, but we, we know the one who is in control. So we cry out to you and we ask, Lord, for you just to, to work. And Father, I pray that you'd show us then, even in light of knowing your word and, and knowing everything about you and your word and how things will end, Lord, that even that, that we keep all this in mind, Lord, that we wouldn't walk in fear, that we continue to have eyes of faith. And Father, that you would continue to awaken your church to be the people that you have called us to be. And be with us now, Lord, as we open your word. Speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, uh, week seven here of our seven-part series. Um, we, we are getting into the Bible with the hopes of getting the Bible into us. That's the whole goal, is that you, you need to open up God's word so God's word can open you up. And, and that you can know how to live in a, in a stable life, in a very unstable world. And, and so to, this morning, um, we finish up. Uh, I, I say finish up. Um, I'm looking at the material, and I, I tried to do 10 sermons in seven weeks. That, that, that never works out well. So I already know that we're going to have to do an addendum, a Facebook video again like we did last week for the last, um, the last bit of class here on Bible study methods. But we left off this last week with talking about Um, The transmission of the Bible and how we can be confident in knowing that the word that you and I have today is literally the words of God, that it has not been changed as it's gone um, through a, a couple thousand years of handoffs, right? How can we be confident? How can we know for sure? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to examine three things this morning in the area of transmission. And then my hope is that we would move on to category two. We're talking about this thing called hermeneutics. How do you read the Bible and interpret the Bible and make sure that we don't do bad, what's called exegesis, meaning pull out bad meaning, pull things out of context. People have done that for thousands of years and made the Bible say what they wanted to say rather than what God wanted to say. So those are the two areas that we'll talk about this morning. So first, let's start off talking about transmission And like we did last week in talking about inspiration, we're going to call three witnesses to the stand as well, okay? That's going to defend our claim that what we hold today, you can trust, is the word of God. That whisper down the lane, it hasn't been changed and added to and deleted and like what we have today is just some kind of editorial copy of the scripture that we know it's literally God's word. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three different areas that will help give us confidence. We're going to talk about scribes. Uh, we're going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is considered one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of modern times. And then we're going to talk about manuscripts and manuscript evidence. And these are the three witnesses that we're going to call to the stand to defend our claim that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God, and it has not been changed over thousands of years. So I hope you have your notebooks because um, I- I'm going to just read to you. Um, we're going to start talking about the scribes and, and, and the process that these, these copyists, that's basically what the scribes were, were um, the meticulousness of which they took. They knew that they were handling the word of God. And so the the great care that they took in, in writing down the scriptures. And if they messed up, what did they do? to make sure that the messed up copies didn't get circulated out into existence, right? So, so let, let's just kind of read these bullets. I, I can't say it any clearer than here. Um, it, it, the early scribal process, talking about from the, the priest of Ezra, from, we're talking about from 500 B.C., On Okay, when I say early scribal process, what did they do? How meticulous were they? Well, one, they could only use clean animal skin, both to write on and then to bind up these manuscripts. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 80 lines. So they had a set number of as as they're writing, no more than forty-eight, no less than eighty lines. The ink must be a special black recipe ink. They must verbalize each word aloud while they were writing. Okay, so they weren't just kind of like, you know, doing it from memory. Each word they would say it out loud. They would stop and wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before they wrote the word Jehovah. All right? That's the reverence with which they took God's name. There was a review within 30 days, and if as many as three pages required any kind of correction, the entire manuscript was discarded and had to be redone. The letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became became invalid if two letters touched each other. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to those of the original document. And then lastly, these documents would only be stored in in a sacred place Um, or actually it was a place where they actually buried people as well. It was called a Geniza, a Hebrew term meaning hidden place. They were usually kept in a synagogue or sometimes a Jewish cemetery. Okay. So, so unbelievable um, care that went in to copying the word of God and passing it on. Now let's talk about a certain set of people called the Masoretes. Okay. And if you thought those guys were fanatical. These guys were even more fanatical. Okay, and the Masoretes—they they copied the scriptures from about 500 A.D. to 1,000 A.D. and 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 that was their job was to make sure that they were as well preserving the Hebrew text, right? Preserving the Hebrew Bible. Okay, um, let me let me read to you these these second paragraph and the third paragraph again. Here's here's what they did. They went to incredibly painstaking rituals to ensure accuracy. They did not just copy the text like we do when we copy a verse from the Bible by reading it and then copying it. They were absolutely meticulous. How meticulous? They had counted and knew exactly how many letters, individual letters, for example, were in the book of Genesis. 78,064. You can, you can count and check. Those are Hebrew letters, though, but you need to pull out a Hebrew copy of the scriptures. They knew more than that. They knew exactly how many letters of each letter of the alphabet were in the book of Genesis. How many, for English sake, A's, or how many B's, or how many C's. Again, this is in Hebrew. They also knew how many letters there were from the beginning of the text to the end of the text and the middle of the text. They knew exactly where it should be, and then they compared them. They knew what the middle letter of the book of Genesis was to be. 50 chapters, right? And then after copying the book of the Bible, if after counting from the ends of the middle, if the count was not accurate, or the letter in the middle was not the correct letter that they knew should be exactly halfway in the middle, um, or there were more or less letters of any given letter of the alphabet than there should have been, the manuscript was discarded and burned because of the unreliability of the original text. So they were not allowing incorrect documents to get out into circulation. Okay. So evidence number one or witness number one describes fanatical about their copying and the, the absolute meticulousness they put into making sure that they copied the word of God. How accurate were they? Let's, let's call to evidence here now the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls is an unbelievable discovery. Um, in, in 1947, Um, A Bedouin shepherd boy was chasing after a lost sheep and and found some caves in Qumran. Um, Qumran is a place down by the Dead Sea, which is why they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm going to show you a picture in just a moment of what these caves... They ended up finding 11 different caves. And in these 11 caves, they found jars. And in these jars, they found thousands of documents and manuscripts of the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me me just, again, in your notes, I don't mean to read to you, um, to insult you, but I can't say it better than I put in here. Uh, And this is why this is important. Up to when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the earliest Old Testament document we had was 980 A.D. Okay, so almost a thousand years A.D. Right. And so... The Dead Sea Scrolls found documents that went back to 150 to 200 BC. Over a thousand years difference, right? They found a thousand year older documents. Lots of them, not just a couple, lots of them. And so we were able to compare the documents that we had from 980 AD from 200 BC over 1,000 years and compare how much has changed in a 1,000-year period of time as the scriptures were passed down from generation to generation, right? Um, let me just read you these middle two paragraphs. Uh, Until the discovery of Dead Sea Scrolls, we had no way of knowing That what we had was an accurate transmission since the time of Christ. There was one complete book found, uh, Isaiah, as well as thousands of fragments, which together represent every Old Testament book except Esther. The Hebrew text of Isaiah was dated to 125 BC. Again, more than a thousand years older than the Hebrew text of Isaiah that we possessed when our most recent copy of the Hebrew text of Isaiah was compared with the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was found to be more than 95% identical. Again, slight variations that existed in no way changed the meaning or communication of the text. If you would, just turn turn your page, okay, and, and I'll, we'll, I gave you an example. If you can skip the pictures, Jen, and go to that little chart, you can see kind of the way that um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, right? And, and, and said hills straight, and what we had at that point was crooked places straight. Okay, that's a that's called a textual variant. And I'll teach you a little bit about that for a second. Or in Isaiah 45, 8, it said rain down righteousness, and what we had at that time, it said pour down righteousness, right? So just These minutia kind of differences over a thousand years that in no way changed any theology or major doctrine, right? And so let me let me just let me share with you and show you this uh, because I I think it's pretty neat. Oh, it's on the screens. It's not on here. Jen, that's on the screen. Sorry. Um, can you go back to those pictures and, sh- and show the first one? Yeah, show the caves, right? So these are the caves at Qumran, um, with the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's 11 of them. Um, and then in the caves, they found not, a jar that looks something like this that preserved um, these thousands of fragments of manuscripts. And, uh, and then you can go in Israel. You can see the, the Isaiah scroll, um, the whole scroll of the book of Isaiah, they have actually a special museum where you, you go around, it's a, it's a big circular display that you can go around and see the, the Isaiah scroll. It's, it's really, it's, it's unbelievable, right? In 1947, um, comparing these documents that had a thousand year difference. And, and so um, when, when you stop and you, you look at the greatest archeological discovery of modern times compared to documents that were a thousand years older, And you find that there's so little that has changed. It just, again, gives us great confidence. Um, Go ahead and throw that quote up, if you would, Jen, after that chart. Uh, That uh, Dick Wilson chart. Uh, Here's what he says: For 45 years continuously, since I left college, I have devoted myself to the one great study of the Old Testament in all of its languages, in all of its archaeology, in all translations, and as far as possible in everything bearing upon its text and history. The result of my 45 years of study of the Bible has led me all the time to a firmer faith. That in the Old Testament we have a true historical account of the Israelite people. Robert Dick Wilson, who was considered to be an outstanding authority on ancient languages of the Middle East, and so again, witness number two, we call we've called to the stand, and 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 we see that okay, these guys were crazy about the way that they copied. They, they now we had a chance to check up on them. We found these things, and then and then we say. They did an amazing job copying, right? And now we're going to call the third witness to the the stand. We're going to call the manuscripts themselves and the manuscript evidence. And the manuscript evidence of these historical documents compared to other historical documents, it, it blows them out of the water with... Well, in your notes, let's talk about manuscript evidence. There is great evidence for the integrity of the New Testament documents. Now we're talking about the New Testament documents. Comparatively speaking, when contrasted with other ancient documents, not only are there thousands more manuscripts and portions of the New Testament than others, <clears throat> uh, because the, old, the oldest New Testament document manuscript portions are centuries earlier, and thus closer to the time of occurrence. Okay. The New Testament has both numbers on our side, number of copies. That's a good thing. I can compare this copy to this copy to this copy. To this. So we have numbers on our side. We have 5,000 documents to compare and we have age on our side. In other words, you want age on your side. This is where age is a good thing. You want age that the writing that you have happened closer to when the event actually happened, right? There wasn't this period of time, the document you have, the oldest document you have is what happened a thousand years after the event happened, right? So I gave you a chart, okay? I gave you a chart, and this is what I think I have here. And 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 again, listen, if this is your first time in the next community church, and you're like, what did I walk into, okay? This is not normally how we do this. We're in this series. We're defending the Bible. Um, it's not normally feeling like a seminary class. That's why I'm making these jokes about it being class, okay? I promise you next week, come back, and it won't be this academic, okay? Um, but you can have confidence that the Bible is the Bible, the Word of God, because we base everything here on the Bible. Um, so let me let me share with you this chart and why this is a big deal. You guys have this in your notes, okay? Um, that's as big as I can make it without cutting it off. You all see that? Is that small on the screen? It's pretty small. I'll move it, and, I'll, and, and then I'll move it around, okay? So that's as big as I can make it. Um, so we have... Um, different, different writings, right? So here's here, oh, here's Homer's Iliad, um, and and so uh, written 800 BC. Uh, we don't know the earliest copy that we have. There's 643 copies of his of his writing, right? Uh, Plato's writing, written around 400 BC. The earliest copy that we have of Plato Plato's writing is is 900 AD, right? So we have a period of 1,300 years from when he wrote it to the earliest copy we have, 1,300 years. And how many copies do we have to compare of Plato's works? Seven manuscripts, seven, right? But you, you, there, there's no great movement out there to, to disprove the writings of Plato, right? There's no great argument to like, uh, and you see a 1,300-year gap in, in seven years, okay? Um, just for the sake of time, let's go down to the New Testament, the New Testament was written between 50 and 100 A.D., 50 years the New Testament was written. Okay? The earliest fragment of a manuscript we have is 114 A.D., okay? or about 50 years after the time of writing. Within the same generation, right? not even enough time for legend or, error to really creep in and to create some kind of false narrative, right? Uh, we have whole books of the Bible from 200 AD, okay? Um, about 100 years after it was written. We have most of the New Testament, 250 AD, and then we have a complete New Testament, 325 AD, right? Um, very close, very close to the time of writing. And then, so I say, we have age on our side. Not only age on our side, but we have numbers on our side. Look at, we have over 5,000 different manuscripts to compare. And that's such a good thing to do when you compare all of these manuscripts that you can look at comparing this one to this one to this one to this one to this one. And what you end up finding is is that the text that you and I have today is 99% accurate, right? And so we have, again, great confidence, That The Bible that we have today are the words that God gave to the original authors when they wrote them down, that it's God's word that has been preserved. He was involved in the inspiration process, he was involved in the canonicity process, and he's involved in the transmission process. God superintended over all of this. And so, if you turn the page, um, I'm not going to read those two quotes, but you can can read those two quotes and you can see... um, Again, people who have devoted their whole lives to this, their great confidence that the Bible that you and I have here today is literally the Word of God, okay? Um, So let me me do this. I want to share with you why, because I gave you another chart, and I want to bring that chart up. And, or actually, before I bring up that chart, I want to share with you one of the things that uh, most Bibles will do. This is a... This is a picture of, uh, of my Bible, and I'm going to try to make it so you can see it. It's just a page of, of the New Testament of Hebrews. Can you see that all out there? No way. Okay. Um, uh, how about now? No. Here's what you can see. Here's a, my point in wanting to, to share this with you, okay, is... Um, is in the bottom of most Bibles, a reference Bible, okay? Most Bibles that are, have references in them, there's two things, okay, that I want you to see. At the bottom, okay, at the bottom here, I don't know if you can read this, if I can make this bigger enough. Can you read it now? No. It says this Some manuscripts omit like a garment. It's footnoted. It's footnoted up here at the top right? And anytime that there's a footnote of a manuscript variant, in other words, we have thousands of manuscripts. Because we don't speak Hebrew and Greek, we have to have it translated into English. And so there's a translation committee for the King James, for the NIV, for the ESV, for the New American Standard, for the New Living. All of them have translation committees, And the committees get together, and they decide on the manuscripts that they're looking at, here is the best textual evidence for us to make our translation. And sometimes there's a question like, "Mm, should we use this one or this one? And they make a decision, but it was close enough that they footnote, the other option, right? So that's what you have, is at the bottom of, if you have a reference Bible, you have some footnotes at the bottom that say, some other manuscripts might say this, okay? Um, but they made the decision and put the best choice in the text. The other thing that you have in a reference Bible, off to the side, are these things called references, okay? Cross-references. And, and it's a great little study help because you'll see in here, there's, there's little numbers or little letters, usually here's an A, here's a B, here's a C, real sub kind of subscript uh, above the text. And all that's doing is giving you, look over here to the side, and that's called a cross-reference, and here's other places in the Bible that are going to either talk about this word, or talk about this concept, So, over here, it's talking about miracles, and it's footnoted, and it says over here, you can also see Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 5, and it will connect you, cross-reference you to other things, other places in Scripture where this is talked about, okay? So, um, how do we know which version to use, right? Again, in your books, I gave you a chart. And so, I I, want to just real quick show you this um, so that you can... Hopefully understand why there's different translations, okay? Again, I don't think you're going to see all that. That's okay. You have it in front of you, okay? Um, So you have a spectrum. And over here on this side of the spectrum is word for word. I'll let that be over here. And over here on this side of the spectrum is thought for thought, because we don't read English or excuse me Greek and Hebrew, the translators had to make a decision: how we're going to translate this. Greek and Hebrew don't always translate smoothly into English. Subject, verb, object. You know, I grabbed the pen. Right? It might say uh, the pen grabbed i often in greek they'll put the important part of the sentence first so you don't miss it so if the author is trying to stress pen it will put pen first pen grabbed i right and so translators have to now make a decision are we going to be as literally accurate as exactly the way it is in Hebrew? That's how we're going to put it in English. That's what you have over here, right? You have the New American Standard. It's very literal. It sometimes reads Yoda speak. <laughs> <laughs> that's what. It, that's the knock on the New American Standard, right? Some people knock the ESV because it's just a step away word for word, right? the pen grabbed i right and so um but what you know you're getting is a more literal translation Sometimes it just doesn't read smooth, right? You go over where on the other side, the major extreme is the message translation, which is one guy just completely put it in contemporary language, Eugene Peterson, who was a language scholar. But the most popular thought for thought translation is the New Living Translation, which is a good translation. It's very modernized, very smoothed out to make sure that you can just read it, right? They're not necessarily worried so much about word for word complete accuracy. It's not like it's not accurate. It's just more thought for thought. And so they're going to change the word order around a little bit and just make sure it's smoother to read, right? Then you find right smack in the middle is the good old NIV, the new international version, or as some critics like to knock it, the nearly inspired version, right? And so it's a, it's a great version. It's the version I used for 25 years of my life until I switched to the ESV. And I told you... Um, a couple weeks ago, that here at Next, we're going to camp out in two main translations, the ESV as well as the CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible. And to me, the Christian Standard Bible is a beautiful mix. It's, it falls right in the middle of the NIV and the ESV. It's very readable, very smooth, very kind of just flows along. And yet they hold on. Their goal is we're going to be as accurate as possible, except if we got to smooth it out a little bit, right? And so their their, their translation strategy is optimal equivalence. They're going to try to optimally make it readable. And so those are the two main translations that we we will use here. Um, We are blessed. You're like, which one's the best? People will argue forever about which one is the best. Maybe you've been to, or maybe you've come from, or maybe you have family members that go to a certain only kind of church. And there's some of those out there. It's only this one, only this one, only it is a translation, right? It is a translation of Hebrew and Greek. And as long as you're using a translation and you're not reading from the original manuscripts, it's going to be somebody's making decisions about how to put it into English. And, you're, and that's the knock is the more that you go this way, the more that you're getting people's interpretations of what it says, rather than just what it says. And so this is why we're going to camp out here at Next with these two. Very comfortable with those. Um, We're blessed with many. I read a lot of translations. When I study, I have a Bible program. It brings them all up. As a matter of fact, on page 62, um, I gave you recommended resources. If you look at page 62, actually it's on the back of 62, there'd be 63, I gave you some Bible apps to use that will help you. If you really want to geek out a little bit, I mean, even more than we're geeking out here this morning, and believe me, I know that we're geeking out a little bit, okay? So the Blue Letter Bible is an amazing app, free app, that you can do word studies in the original languages, you can bring up the words and understand the parsing of the words and understand the context of the words and how many times that Greek word or Hebrew word is used in scripture. It is a wealth. It's a free app to use, right? So um, use those apps. We're blessed with many translations. Use them. Here's the other thing I want to encourage you to do. I gave you to purchase premium Bibles. I gave you the main site to purchase good Bibles. Here's what I want to encourage you to do, church. Get yourself a good Bible. Like, get yourself a Bible that is going to last. And spend, invest a little money into it. I mean, we, we think nothing of spending $130 on a pair of sneakers, right? Just get yourself a good leather Bible that is, is not one of these... You know the self closers, they're always trying to close on you, right? It's like, don't, don't have a self closer, it's fighting you to stay open, right? Get one that's gonna sit open and be nice and one that you will enjoy, one that feels good, the font that you can read inside. There are so many good options out there. Get yourself one that's gonna last you. It's gonna last you. And I'm not against using it on your phone, but like in a time of, like maybe now on your phone, it's fine. But like when you're gonna sit down and spend time with God, don't do it on your phone. It's, you're just going to be so distracted. At least that's me. I, I, again, I'm not being legalistic about it. But I just think, because it's no more inspired, written on a page, than on a screen, than on a screen. It's all the same, the same thing, right? So let's not be legalistic and be like, well, this is the real Bible. On your phone, it's not the real Bible. No, it's, it's the same words. It's the, the, the means on which it's printed on doesn't make it more the Bible, okay? But how you then are able to engage with it in my humble opinion, uh, when you're not distracted by other notifications and things coming in, and just uh, I put my phone away, put it away, and then just sit down with God and His Word and let that speak to you, okay? So, all right. Questions about that? No. All right, let's move on. Next one. <laughs> let's, real quick, do hermeneutics, okay? We've got to talk to you about hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? And then we're going to respond in worship, right? We're going to respond in worship that we have God gave us the Bible. It's unbelievable. Hermeneutics is is this. In your notes, it just means to interpret. It's just a a big word that means literally to interpret, okay? So let me give you the biblical definition of hermeneutics. Really not even biblical. It applies to all um, language, right? Hermeneutics is the study of the principles of interpretation, Hermeneutics is just the, the big word for the study of the principles of interpretation. It comes from a Greek word, hermeneuo which simply means to translate or to interpret. Right now, I am trying to communicate to you a point. And your goal is to interpret what I am saying. We're doing hermeneutics right now, right? Hermeneutics is happening. And you're applying principles as you're hearing right now you're applying, you don't even know it, you're applying principles. There's seven principles when you're going to read, not just the scripture, really anything of how to interpret so you get the correct meaning. The goal of sitting down with the Bible is to know God better and to make sure that you are getting the correct meaning of what is in here. That's hermeneutics. And so let me go over with you The seven principles, okay? Uh, Our first three bullet notes here. The goal of interpretation is to grasp what the original author meant. That's the goal. What does this mean? You all know you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And people do. That's bad hermeneutics. The goal is what, when Matthew wrote the book of Matthew being divinely guided by God, what did he mean when he said that, when he wrote that? That's hermeneutics, right? Number two, the means to do this is to follow a set of hermeneutical rules or guidelines. There are seven of them that we're going to give you. That's the next fill-in. There are seven guidelines. Again, not necessarily unique to the Bible, but all literature in general. Here's rule number one. Rule number one is this is that you need to prioritize the literal meaning. That's the starting point of interpreting anything, is literal interpretation. I am literally speaking to you. I know the next generation uses this word wrongly all the time. I literally am like, no, you're not literally, you're using that word wrong, right? Literally, no, no, the goal, rule number one is to understand literally what is being said. What is the literal meaning? Underneath here, the basis of most communication is literal communication, right? A literal understanding of the words and the phrases, okay? The literal mantra is this, right? Here, uh, for, for some of these principles, we're gonna give you a little slogan, okay? Here's the literal mantra, okay? If when you're reading the Bible, if plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, all right? If the plain sense makes good sense, Seek no other sense. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Huh. I wonder what Jesus means there. (laughs) He means exactly, literally, he means there's no other way to the Father except through him. Like, that's literally what it means, right? So, literal. This is rule number one. This is why it's guideline number one. Prioritize the literal meaning, okay? This does, in your notes, this allows for figures of speech, right? And, and for metaphors and hyperboles and for us, the supernatural, right? It doesn't rule out miracles in the supernatural. But if I'm sitting here today and saying, man, I'm, I'm, I'm working up an appetite. I'm getting so hungry I could eat a horse, Right? That's a saying, or at least it was a saying. I know younger generation, you're like, what are you talking about? But you all understand when I'm saying I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. You're, literal, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. You're like, does Joe really want to eat a horse? Right? And so you say, no. Oh, what he's saying is he's really hungry. right? So prioritizing literal meaning allows for metaphors and analogies, okay? Figures of speech, all right? Turn the page, here's principle number two that's really important, and that is this. Context is king. Context. Context, context, context. You ever have anybody take your words out of context? How's that feel? God has it done to him all the time. People are always pulling things out of context, right? You've got to take the words in context, okay, they're written in a in a in a, a in a in a section that has meaning tied to the words around it. You can't lift that up out of there and, and make it mean something else. That's bad hermeneutics, okay? So let me give you four levels of context when you're thinking of the Bible. This is kind of common sense, but let me make sure you give it to you. Uh, first is the immediate context. That's the paragraph around it, right? That's, that's the paragraph that's around it. Read around it. Make sure that you're using this sentence correctly. The next level of context, we're going to go out a little bit, cir- uh, a circle further, is uh, what we call near context. That's the book that it's in. In other words, if we're talking about um, the wrath of God... What's the context that it's being talked about? First, let's look at the paragraph that it's in. Now, let's look at the book that it's sitting in. And how is it being used in this book? If we go out a circle further, number three in your notes, or letter C in your notes, is authorial content. We're talking about how does the author use this word? Or how does the author talk about this theme? What does Paul, how does he use this, Paul, in other letters, right? So in other words, after a while of listening to me speak, you get to used to some of the words and the phrases and the made-up words that I make and all this. Like, and, like, and so you understand a month from now when I say something, you're like, oh, that's just Joe being Joe, right? You're, you're not going to take me out of context. You understand how I use certain things or certain phrases, right? So that's the same thing you do with the Bible. So paragraph, book, author, last one, wide context is all the books of the Bible. The other books of the Bible how that uses a certain word or concept. Let me give you one example of how we use things out of context a lot. And, and this is a popular one, so I'm probably going to burst some of your old bubbles, okay? But, but you, can, you can live in your own little la-la land, or you can say, oh, I want to know what this really means, right? Um, we use a phrase all the time. It comes from a Bible verse. So we say, anytime something bad happens to somebody, we say, well, God works all things together for good. We like to give that. And that's true. That's a Bible verse. Part of it. Without any context. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And we usually stop right there. But you've got you to read the rest of that verse. It says who are called according to his purpose. Oh, so the terrible situation that you're in, God somehow might work this thing out for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? What do you think we should do to figure out his purpose? Let's read the next verse. There's a good idea. Read the next verse. The next verse says, For those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he, meaning Jesus, would be the firstborn of among many brothers and sisters together here, right? Um, And so God's purpose is for you to look like Jesus, to conform to the image of Jesus, and so when we say, or rather when God says that he's going to work everything together for good, for the purpose of God is somehow I'm going to use this to help you look more like Jesus. That's what God means. That's what that verse means. But all the time we can pull that one verse out of context, right? And so do you want to be biblical or do you want to just live on you know good sayings and slogans? God helps those who help themselves, that's not even in the Bible, so don't even use that one, all right? One day I'm going to do a series on all the things that are not in the Bible that we say. That, that's number one, right? Followed up by cleanliness is next to godliness. That ain't in there either, all right? Principle number three, and that is this. Scripture always interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture, Okay? This is really taking the concept of context and expanding it out to the whole Bible, right? So in other words, if your interpretation leads you to something that someplace else in the Bible clearly refutes, you've come to a bad interpretation, right? Because scripture has to interpret scripture. The the sub-principle underneath this, it's not in your notes, is the clearer principles of Scripture interpret the little bit less clearer. The timing of Jesus returning to the earth. Is it a pre-tribulational rapture? Is it a mid-tribulational rapture? Is it a post-tribulational rapture? The fact that there are three views tells you that there is not necessarily black and white. I have my own personal view. I would hold on to it, but I'm not, not going to fight you for that. I wouldn't fight you on that. You know what I would fight you on? All scripture is God-breathed. This is the word of God. You say, no, that's just your interpretation. I say, no, I'll fight you on that one. Jesus is the son of God and the only way to heaven. Oh, that's just your interpretation. No, no, no. I'd fight you on that one, right? And and so we got to make sure that the more clear interprets the less clear, all right? This principle grows out in your notes a strong view of inspiration, It grows out of a strong view of inspiration. So for a time, the book of James, our New Testament book of James, was not liked to be part of the original canon. They didn't didn't necessarily want James to be in the canon because it seems like it's talking about that in order to be saved, you have to do good works. You have to work, you have to work, you have to work. And so it was like, wait a minute, if... If you're going to take James, you've got to put it up against the clear teachings in Romans that says it is by grace that we have been saved, right? Uh, in, in Ephesians, it says this is a gift of God, not by works. And so you got to make sure that the more clear, so if you think James is about works, like that's a bad interpretation. Here's what James is saying. If you have real faith, it's going to show up in your real works. Real faith produces real works, right? So you got so. <clears throat> I gave you a couple examples there. That was one of them, James in light of Romans and Galatians. So, here's what we got to do. And I knew this was going to happen, and it's okay. Class is going to end now, class. <laughs> and we're just we're just got to respond. We just got to respond. And and here's what I'll do. We'll finish it again tomorrow, okay? We we got to stop this series because there's a brand new series that we're doing in relation to what God's doing here at Next the timing of us Lord willing, buying this building and moving forward and being here in this community. And it all ties into where we're going next. And like, why don't we just keep going with the series? There's a reason why. And so we'll finish it up um, on Facebook tomorrow, okay? I encourage you, if you didn't get to hear about canonization, go back. It ended up being 27 minutes. Go back and watch that one. I can tell you right now to finish this and to do Bible study. Because the last one is how to do Bible study. How to read the Bible. Study it. Um, It's going to be another 27 minutes at least. So I'll join y'all sometime tomorrow night. We'll post it tomorrow. Um, What a blessing to have the Word of God, right? What a blessing that God has not left us here uninformed and unguided, that he told us everything that you need to know is here in this book. We said the very first week, the B I B L E stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, and it's so true. And you look at what's happening in the world, and you're like, I don't, I don't know how much time we have left. And and so, um, church, I think we need to be about it. I, I think we've got to be men and women of the Word, get into the Word, so the Word gets into us and shapes us, and start thinking about eternity. Because so far, everything that God said is going to happen in this book has happened. And so that means everything that he says is still going to happen, it's going to happen. And so I'm so glad we have it. I'm so glad that we have great hope. After Easter, we're going to launch into a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to journey through that in the spring and the summer. And it talks about the hope that we have because Jesus is coming back that our king is returning, that even now we worship a king who is alive. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He's seated on his throne. And right now we have a chance to worship him, to thank him and to praise him. Take our eyes off everything in the world. And for the next 12 minutes, put our eyes on Jesus. Can we do that? Let's stand together and let's worship him together, church.